0: I'm too close to heaven. I can almost see my journey's end. Shaking hands with all my 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 my, my, my friends you know I'm a few hi there, welcome to our Soul Food broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. chapter 20, if you can, please stand when you get that. And David fled from Naoth and Ramah went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means. You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It should not be so. David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is a new moon. I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all my family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant to the covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, there is iniquity in me. Kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, far be it from from you, for for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We're all at different places in our relationship with you. I pray that you would speak to each one of those situations this morning by your Holy Spirit. we ask asking Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Someone wants to find a friend as the one person who comes in when the whole world goes out. And there are a lot of people who will stick with you when things are going well or when you have money. And there are a lot of people who will sing your praises when you're on top, but they will forget your name when you bottom out. Whatever you want to call those types of individuals, they are not true friends. A few years back, Pepper Rogers was in the middle of a terrible season as football coach at UCLA. It even got so bad that it caused problems in his marriage. He recalls, My dog was my only friend. Hoping for sympathy, I told my wife that a man needs at least two friends. She left the house and came back with another dog. Well, long before there was Batman and Robin, long before there was Calvin and Hobbes, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, Bert and Ernie and Beavis and Butthead, and I truly hope you're ignorant of that last duo, there was David and Jonathan And we all need true friends. And for most of us, it's not enough to just have people around us. We need friends, close friends, those that we can confide in, those who will share our problems and listen to us. We need people who will be loyal no matter what. But how can we tell the difference? It's been said that a friend will bail you out of jail but a true friend will be sitting beside you saying, man, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I guess that is one way you can tell if you have a true friend or not. But for those of us who have a natural aversion to incarceration, we need another way to tell. There were two friends whose friendship was so strong, so loving, and so loyal, has become the standard for measuring all friendships. I'm, of course, talking of Jonathan and David. But today, I want us to focus on Jonathan, as there are so many things we can learn from him and implement into our own lives. Verse 1, please. And David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. David's question to Jonathan is a question I would wager has been asked by everyone in this room at one time or the other. What have I done and what is my iniquity that has brought all this trouble into my life? Now, of course, there are times in our lives when we don't have to ask that question as we are perfectly cognizant of the wrongdoing that we have done. We realize that the problems that we are encountering are the logical outworkings ...of our sinful choices. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those times in life... ...where as far as we know... ...we are blameless in the sight of God... ...and of men. And yet the problems still... ...keep coming. Why does that happen sometimes? Well often... ...most of our trouble comes... ...simply from living in a fallen... ...and sin-cursed world. For example... Prisoner 175517 was thirsty, and seeing a fat icicle hanging outside his hut in the Auschwitz extermination camp, he reached it out and broke it off to quench his thirst. But before he could get the icicle in his mouth, a guard came by, snatched it out of his hand, and smashed it on the filthy ground. Why? the prisoner said instinctively. Here there is no why the guard answered with brutal finality. That, for Primo Levi, the Italian Jewish scientist and writer, was the essence of the death camps, places not only of undeniable indiscriminate authority, but of absolute evil that defied all explanation. In the face of such wickedness, explanations born of psychology, sociology, and humanism are pathetic in their inadequacy. Sometimes trouble comes just by living in the enemy's territory. The same holds true for us. For we are also living in enemy-occupied terrain this morning. Allow me to give you a few scriptures concerning this. John 16:33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcame the world. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Thessalonians 3.4 For when we were with, with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And finally, 1 Peter 5.9 Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the entire world. Why would I draw our attention to such things this morning? Because I would be doing you a disservice if I wasn't completely honest about that part of the Christian life. We talked about this last Wednesday night in our Pilgrim's Progress study. Namely, as is evidenced by the book, the road to the celestial city is fraught, with danger and with heartache. If you recall in John 6, after many of the followers of Jesus left him, Jesus looked at the twelve and said, Are you also going to leave me? To which Peter replied, Lord, where can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And that's really the bottom line, isn't it? Life can be hard, and sometimes it's hard because... We are believers. But where else can we go? Who wants to go back into the darkness where we think we are free to do what we want only to find out that sin had us bound and was slowly destroying us? You probably heard that Charlie Sheen, who often boasted about his sexual escapades, is now HIV positive. As the scripture says, be sure of this one thing, your sin will find you out. No mere mortal can mock God with impunity. It may look to us like evil is winning and people are getting away with sinning. But in the words of Longfellow, though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. But back to David. David. Now, although in the future, David will do things that God must punish, at this point in time, he has done nothing to deserve the treatment that he is getting from Saul. In fact, at every turn, David has done nothing but good for King Saul. So we can understand his dismay when he asks Jonathan, What have I done? And why does your father want to kill me? David asks, What have I done? Like David, oftentimes we may think that trouble comes our way because we've done something. And perhaps God is indeed chastening, disciplining, or correcting us. But hard times are not always about punishment. Sometimes hard times are about preparation. The Lord will use the next ten years of David's life, where he will be running for his life, and hiding in caves, to work something in his heart that can only be accomplished through the vehicle of, of suffering. Now it sounds nonsensical, but a life with no resistance is not as enviable as we might imagine. On December 29, 1987, a Soviet cosmonaut returned from Earth after 326 days in orbit. He was in good health, but that has not always been the case in those record-breaking voyages. What I mean is, five years earlier, touching down after only 211 days in space, the two cosmonauts came back and they suffered from dizziness, high pulse rates, and heart palpitations. They couldn't even walk for a solid week. And after 30 days, they were still undergoing therapy for atrophied muscles and weakened hearts. Why? At zero gravity, the muscles of the body begin to waste away because there is no resistance. Now, to counteract this, the Soviets prescribed a vigorous exercise program for the cosmonauts. They invented what they called a penguin suit, which was a running suit laced with elastic bands. It resisted every move that the cosmonauts made, forcing them to constantly exert their strength. And that fixed the problem. You know, we too often dreamily think about days of no difficulty, but God knows better. The easier our lives, the weaker our spiritual fiber. For strength of any kind only grows by exertion. Now, when I was preparing this message, it wasn't my intention to devote so much time to verse 1. But I kept getting stuff as I typed, so I truly hope this helps some people this morning who must be going through some difficult times. But on to verse 2. David's innocence in relation to Saul become a major theme in the closing chapters of 1 Samuel. The rhetorical question, what has David done, will be asked of Saul in chapters 20, 26, and 29. Jonathan cannot believe his ears. It is simply unconceivable to Jonathan that Saul had actually gone back on his word after he promised to his son that he would not put David to death. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love always hopes. Or we could say that love always hopes and believes the best about people. The problem with that is, if we're not careful and diligent in our outlook, after people have let you down a few times it is easy to develop and nurture a cynical attitude towards just about everybody. But there was in Jonathan that rare and prized ability to trust people and to believe the best about their motives and their intentions. The same spirit that made it easy for Jonathan to believe in his friend's innocence made it difficult for him to believe in his father's guilt. And it is encouraging to know that in a home where the father suspected everybody, there could grow up a son who suspected nobody. Look at verse 3 with me. And David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. While visiting the space exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington, Great Britain's Princess Anne was introduced to Neil Armstrong. During her tour, she noticed a a display of the spacesuits. Turning to Armstrong, she asked, is there any danger of a rip? The one who had taken such risks to be the first to walk on the moon replied, yes, the difference between life and death up there is one one one-hundredth inch of rubber. The same is true for us down here on Earth. A very fine line separates us from death and time and eternity. Now, centuries ago, David realized this when he expressed the imminent peril that attended his every step. David then affirms in the strongest possible words of vow the fact that his life is in grave danger. He believes he is but a hair's breadth away from death. He says there is but a step between me and death. What a great truth. Because we are all truly one step away from eternity. And because of that, we should live our life in such a way that we are always ready to step into God's glorious presence. David later wrote the sequel to these words of desperation. found the words of Psalm 39.4 where he wrote, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may realize how frail my life is. Having an awareness of the brevity of life should motivate us to live each day totally unto the Lord. And that will enable us to take that final step without fear. For none of us know how long we have until we breathe our last. It has been said that we are not ready to live until we are ready to die. It would be wise for us to realize that we all, everyone in here, has a limited number of days. That God has given to us. I heard a story the other day about an older man giving some younger man some advice. He told the younger guy that about 20 years ago, he decided he would stop taking his weekends for granted. He felt he had spent years wasting his days on sleeping until the afternoon, watching television for the rest of the day, and eventually, with a beer in his hand in a recliner, going to sleep. He felt there was something wrong with that picture, and he decided to do something about it. So he bought a bag of marbles. He grabbed an old glass jar from his garage and poured the marbles in. One marble for each Saturday he had for the rest of his life. He was 55 at the time, and he assumed he had about 20 more years worth of Saturdays, which was about 1,040 marbles in total. Every Saturday from that day on, he'd start by going downstairs to the garage He'd grab one of the marbles and carry it without him throughout the entire day. And at the end of the day, he'd throw the marble away. He said it reminded him that this particular day in his life would never come around again. He was telling the guy a story because on that day, he had picked the last marble out of the jar. His eyes watered up a bit as he thought about the last 20 years of Saturdays that had come and gone. And how dramatically different they were from the ones that preceded them. How each one had a sense of urgency and of intention. How each was an opportunity to make his life a little bit better and the life of his family a little bit better. He told the young man that he now felt fortunate, not only that he had been able to experience all those Saturdays, but he would even been given more than he had planned. He said every single Saturday after this one is a gift, and his heart was filled with gratitude. As he walked away from the young man, he turned around and said, Remember to number your days. I believe one of the wisest ways to live is to live every day as if it was our last opportunity to get things right and to straighten things out. Verse 4, please. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you self-desire, I'll do it for you. What is Jonathan saying? Whatever you say... I'll do. So if we want to develop a heart like Jonathan's heart, we must develop a heart of loyalty. That might mean listening to your friend's troubles when you'd rather be watching your favorite TV show. That might mean confronting your friend about a bad habit when you have trouble even telling someone they have food in their teeth. That might mean canceling a trip you look forward to all year to attend the funeral of your friend's mother. It might mean sometimes saying to your friend, as Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do that for you. But there's a far greater application that I want us to see. Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There are many things that people consider the litmus tests for their love for Christ. For some, it's church attendance or tithing 10% of your income. Or on the other end of the spectrum, it's to not smoke, drink, or chew, or go out with girls who do. But the Bible gives a different test. What Jesus says is a lot simpler to understand, but often a whole lot harder to carry out. And that is just simple obedience. So Jonathan says to David, whatever you desire, I will do that for you. That should be the exact thing we should say to the Lord, regardless of what he may ask of us. Lord, whatever you desire, that I will do for you. I love the poem that says, Where our captain bids us go, tis not ours to murmur no. He that gives the sword and shield chooses to the battlefield. Verse 5, please. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David, earnestly ask permission of me, that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, then be sure that evil is determined by him. (coughs) Here David encourages Jonathan to lie to his father. Here's the thing about lying. It always confuses the issue. Little Johnny was assigned a paper on childbirth and asked his mother, How was I born? The stork brought you to us. Okay. How were you and daddy born? The stork brought us also. So how was grandma and grandpa born? Well, darling, the stork brought them also. The next day, Johnny handed in his paper to the teacher. It read, this report is impossible to write due to the fact there hasn't been a natural childbirth in my family for three generations. (laughs) Here's something we need to remember. God isn't endorsing what David is doing here. The Bible is simply recording the fact of what is going on. One thing I love about the Bible is it paints its heroes, warts and all. It never glosses over the failures of even of its greatest characters. But let me say this. Anytime we resort to lying, it is evidence that we are not fully trusting God in that situation. Anytime I think I have to jump in and help God out with my carnality, it shows my lack of faith in an all-loving and all-powerful God that I would think he needs my assistance to accomplish his will for me. But here's the thing. It looks like the lie worked. In a way, I guess it did. What if instead David would have been truthful? What if they would have had Jonathan say, look, Dad, with you throwing spears at David, he's simply afraid you're going to kill him. Now, if Saul would have heard that and truly repented. David could have came back to Saul's service. Or if Saul got angry and started screaming. You would have had your answer there also. And David could still have fled. So personally, I don't see the difference in the outcome either way. Plus, by not lying, we can then trust God to work out the situation in our lives and then be able to look back on it and rejoice that our trust and faith in God was completely justified instead of of trusting ourselves to work it out by lying and deceit. Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant to a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew that certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Here a famous Hebrew word is used. "Deal kindly captures the sense well. It it speaks of mercy to one in need by one with a power to help. They both know that David is going to be the future king. But in humility, he refers to himself as Jonathan's servant. But even now, David is obviously pretty stressed out. David then asks Jonathan to execute himself rather than turn him over to Saul if he is guilty of any type of sin. He's basically saying, look, Johnny, if this is just a setup to get me with your father, you go ahead and kill me. Right here where I stand. That teaches us that when you're under great stress, as David is right here, you can begin to get suspicious of even those people who love you and have the best of intentions for you. Always be suspicious of the emotions that you feel when you're under pressure. Because even then, and right now, David sounds paranoid. Stress sires suspicions and pressure produces Paranoia. Jonathan himself declared himself not only to be for David, but also against David's enemies. Now, whether he knew this or not, this set him against his own father, but this cannot be avoided. The point comes that when those who love the future king must set themselves against his enemies, regardless of who they are. Jonathan seems to me to be the Bible's clearest example of what Jesus said When he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, we know Jesus meant that in comparison to our love for him, our love for anyone else should seem as hatred. We are told in many places the importance of loving our families. This is just a good example of reading the Bible in context. Now, we cannot know whether Jesus had Jonathan in mind when he spoke of hating one's own father, but I would not be at all surprised if he did. Conflict of loyalties, especially in the family, is one of the most painful difficulties we can experience on earth. But Christ calls for supreme devotion to himself and his will for our lives. Now, John says, look, I realize you may be thinking that I sound pretty bold and confident while we're sitting here in a meadow and no danger is around. But I want you to know I'll have the exact same boldness concerning my oath even when the demon possesses my father and his eyes narrow and he begins chucking spears. Even then, I will defend you. Have you ever seen a demon-possessed person with a spear that is not a good combination. That's like me in an empty coffee cup in the morning. It's just not a pretty picture. But isn't that how it is in life? It's easy to be bold and confident in times of peace and prosperity. But how do we react when the heat gets turned up? And should not have David known that the anointing upon him, that Saul could not possibly kill him until his time to become king was pass? He should have known. But the tremendous pressure of the situation caused the promises promises of God to somehow become unreal in David's life. And I wonder, are these symptoms to be found in any of our lives this morning? Has the pressure of some situation, some circumstance, or some trial brought you to doubt the promise that God has given you? And the word of God and his purpose in your life? If so, I would encourage you to step back from the emotions and talk to someone who can give you some good biblical counsel. You see, Jonathan has made a determination here that he would rather have David's friendship than to have the entire kingdom. He'd rather be found the friend of the king than to be the king himself. You just have to ask yourselves, how incredible is that? That, friends, is the mark of a true friend. When you put the accomplishments of another over your own. When you put the well-being of the other person over your own. That is the hard part of being a true friend. The taking part is easy. The giving part is often a whole lot tougher. Jonathan, however, had no problem with it. Neither did another character in the Bible, John the Baptist. In chapter 1, we read about the priests and the Levites coming to John and asking him who he was. He tells them plainly he isn't Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. He tells them in a roundabout way that he was the one called to precede the Christ. He is sent to prepare his coming. Now, it would have been really easy for John to claim to be someone else, but John John was committed to the one who was going to come after him. In chapter 3, we find John and some of John the Baptist's disciples coming to him, and they're concerned over Jesus' baptizing so many people. They saw Jesus as competition, just as Jonathan could have seen David as competition. John's reply, part of it, comes in verse 30. He must increase, and I must decrease. He saw the God given mission of Jesus and was perfectly happy to take the back seat to that. Couldn't the same thing be said here of Jonathan? Can you hear him say about David? He must increase. But I must decrease. In closing, I firmly believe that Jonathan saw the bigger picture as well, and he was happy to let his friend increase, to receive the glory, and to take the back seat to the one who would become the future king. We would also be wise to take the back seat to our king, the king of kings, for it is only then that life will truly work out. Or as the old saying goes, If Jesus is your co-pilot, it's time to switch seats. And, Father, that's what we want in our lives. We want to put you first. We want you to increase and us to decrease. It is one of those things in the Bible, Lord, it makes no sense to our flesh, but we know that when we do it and obey you, we find our lives marked by joy and peace and contentment and a sense of purpose that nothing in this world can give us. Do that for us, O Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.